This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Students go to class just four days a week in nearly half the school districts in Colorado. It's a growing trend because districts see it as a way to save money. That includes Sterling on the Northeastern Plains, which is about a month into its first school year with a four-day schedule. Superintendent Jan DeLay is on the line, and welcome to the program. Thank you, Ryan. Tell us more about why Sterling decided to switch to a four-day schedule, eliminating Mondays. Well, it really was a cost-cutting strategy. Uh, We were telling our voters a year ago that we needed a mill levy override because for the past seven years, we've been getting $2 million less per year from the state. And let me just say that a mill levy override is essentially a property tax increase. And with declining state funds, you felt you had to go to voters to make up the rest. We did. We've been going into our reserves. Long story short, uh, we failed. We are going after another vote this November. But in the meantime, we had to do some drastic budget cuts. And you want to try to do the things that touch students the least. And it doesn't seem like a four-day week would touch students the least. But when I'm looking at choices such as cutting teachers, cutting uh, extracurricular activities, uh, eliminating all field trips, a four-day week seemed like a strategy that would be the least painful And it was painful. It was not an easy decision. Uh, Not all districts, I should say, have gone this route simply to cut costs. But how much do you expect to save this year by going to that four-day week? I guess I would say the not-so-dirty little secret is that you are balancing your budget on the backs of the people who have the least amount of paychecks. So our paraprofessionals had their hours cut because of the four-day week. Our custodians have their hours cut because of the four-day week. Um, But as a whole, we're going to save probably about $900,000. $900,000. Okay, you say so some of Uh that comes from utility savings, because presumably you don't have uh, all those buildings operating for a fifth day. Paraprofessionals, just say who that includes. Well, it includes people who are in the buildings to support our children who have special needs, our children who are English language learners. And with a four-day week, paraprofessionals then become part-time employees. And what the district saves mainly is health insurance and benefits. What does that mean um, for those employees? So again, it's not good. It's, 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 a, it's a troublesome thing. It's a place, though, that school districts are in, they're between a rock and a hard spot. You know, universities who have budget cuts can raise tuition. Businesses that have different kinds of uh, minimum wage requirements, as was just voted in by the taxpayers in November, we have to make those salary increases, and we have nothing to pass that on to. There's no other consumer that we can pass that on to. So, Unfortunately, we had to make this decision based on the best interests of our students. It's interesting you mentioned minimum wage because one complaint about uh, its raising in Colorado is that it was uniform across the state and may have unduly affected rural areas. So is the minimum wage playing into this? The minimum wage didn't play into the reason to choose a four-day week, but the minimum wage exacerbates our budget problems. So the Brookings Institution says this is actually a trend, quote, sweeping the Intermountain West. It's happening in Montana, Idaho, and Oregon. But Brookings questions how much money can actually be saved. 
Uh, One reason is that some schools open the buildings on the fifth day anyway for activities and sports. Uh, Again, for you, the off day is Monday. And I, I wonder, are your schools open Mondays in any capacity? No, and I'm familiar with that report. Um, We are very cognizant of keeping those schools placed on that weekend setting for utilities. It's all computerized across our district. So even if, say, the city were to use a gym for volleyball, the utilities will be set at the weekend setting. So even if there's bodies in that in that gymnasium on a given Monday evening, uh, that's not going to be much of a cost to the school district. So I mentioned that about half of Colorado school districts are on this four-day schedule. I want to be very clear that that does not mean half of students, because this is mostly happening in smaller, more rural districts. But still, there's a lot of experience out there already. And I understand that you talked with a superintendent in a district nearby that's been four days a week for about six years. And uh, Mm -hmm. uh, what did you hear from him? Uh, He said that he would rather have a five-day week if everything was up to him, but his community loves the four-day week, and their students have increased their student achievement. And that was consistent with some of the other research that I read prior to making this recommendation to our Board of Education um, from school districts in Colorado. There was a research study done from University of Montana, I believe, or maybe it was Montana State, that included Colorado students and measured their achievement on the state achievement tests. And ironically, those students improved slightly. Now, you can't really say that that piece of research has a causal connection to four-day week. But when we looked at this with every ounce of openness that we could, we couldn't find strong evidence that a four-day week decreased student achievement because in many times the kids have an extra day to do some other things. Teachers have an extra day that they use for planning, and student achievement in many cases goes up. Let me say that this conversation was with the superintendent at Gilcrest, Platteville, LaSalle. Uh, This is the Weld RE1 school district just south of Mm -hmm. Greeley. And I'd like to talk a bit more about how this could affect students academically. So you mentioned that research you're not getting rid of any classroom time in this endeavor. You've, you've made the other school days longer, as I said, to make up for the fifth day. This is enough of a trend that the state education department has a manual for going to four days a week. And I was fascinated that it found, quote, the general feeling is that students do no worse on the four-day week than on the traditional schedule. So you saw some encouraging research. Is this something that you're going to track and evaluate in Sterling? Oh, yes. And so will our constituents. They'll be looking hard at this. And they'll also be looking hard at our data that shows what what cost savings we're realizing. Um, We're going to be under the microscope for the next year or so. Uh, More from that Department of Education report here. Quote, the general conclusion is that when strictly enforced, there are fewer disruptions to instructional time during the four-day week. But officials say that it also hasn't been studied whether certain students who need more reinforcement will struggle with having a three-day weekend. This is a big deal in Colorado because schools here have some of the worst achievement gaps in the country between white students and minority students. So is there any way to tell if those high-need students, I'm thinking of English language learners or kids with disabilities, are struggling in this environment? Well, we'll be looking at that because we are a high-poverty school district and we do have a number of very high-need students 
uh, we pay attention to how we are growing those students. But aren't those the same students who rely on paraprofessionals who you've made part-time? That is to say, I wonder, one, what the paraprofessional loyalty and quality will be in that environment, and that those are the folks connected to the most vulnerable students. Well, the paraprofessionals are there for support to the most vulnerable students. They are not the primary teacher of the most vulnerable students. We have teachers who do that. And the paraprofessionals are staying with us, not all of them. Some of them did have to leave, but we have uh, high-quality meetings and trainings for our teachers and our paraprofessionals. You're listening to Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner, and I'm joined by the superintendent of schools in Sterling, Colorado, on the Northeastern Plains. That's Jan DeLay. And we're talking about her district's decision to go to a a four-day-a-week schedule. It's uh, just begun, that new schedule, and it was uh, in large part dictated by finances in the district. So I understand that in general, moving to four days a week is popular with teachers who like having an extra day to plan lessons. And I know a lot of the districts around you are already on the four-day-a-week schedule. We also know that there's a teacher shortage in Colorado, particularly in rural areas. So I wonder uh, if it had become a competitive disadvantage for you not to be four days a week before you made this change. Like, had prospective teachers balked at the idea of working a five-day schedule in a rural district like Sterling? You know, I don't have evidence of that, Ryan, but we did take that into account in attracting high-quality teachers because we do have one of the lowest pay rates in the state of Colorado. So in addition to Colorado being 43rd out of 51 states nationwide for teacher pay, we are one of the lowest in the whole state. And we did consider the fact that having a four-day week may attract some teachers that would not come for the rate of pay that we can afford. And that, in fact, has proven true. We have attracted a couple of very high-quality teachers to our high school that I do not believe would have come if we had just the traditional five-day week. Oh, fascinating. Well, what, what do parents and kids say about the new schedule? You know, I spent a couple of days at the high school when school started, and just I was hanging out in the cafeteria and having lunch with kids and asking them what they thought. And our high school kids love it. Many families, it's a hardship because they need to find childcare on that Monday with the younger children. But we do provide some childcare with our school district. And then we have a community organization called the Family Resource Center that is providing free childcare on Monday. And then many of our churches have also stepped up for that Monday. So it's one of those circumstances where a school district has to make an unpopular decision and the community rallies around and finds solutions for the students. The community only rallies around to a certain extent, though, and not to the tune of raising taxes. <laughs> well, we'll see. We have we have this up at the ballot again this November, and we this time we have a community group that's out campaigning for us, and they've instructed me to kind of step back. Last year, I was very involved in this. And they said, you know, let's just try and do this from a grassroots community vantage point. And so I've said, that's fine with me. We'll see what happens this time around. You know, it's at a place where we probably can struggle by for the next couple years with the draconian cuts that we've made, because it wasn't just the four-day week, but we made deep, deep cuts in central office. Um, There's going to be a time where 
taxpayers are going to see that if they want strong public schools, somebody's got to pay for them. Can the cat ever go back in the bag? That is, can you go back to a five-day school week, or do you just think four is it now? I've heard that after one or two years of a four-day week, the community and the families tend to love it, and they don't want to go back. So it would just be up to this community and this members of this school board and public to say what they can afford. Because even if we pass a, a mill levy override this November, we still wouldn't be able to go back. It, it's, it's not enough. Do you like being superintendent these days? <laughs> you know, it's sometimes it's just wonderful. We had some high school students come in and do some presentation to our board last night, and it just tickles me, and I love every minute of that. Some of these other budget things, it's some of the most difficult years of my life. So it's a mixture. Like any job, I suppose, one is passionate about. Jen, thanks, yes. thanks so much for being with us. Sure. Jan DeLay is superintendent of the RE1 Valley School District in Sterling, Colorado, on the Northeastern Plains. This year, they switched to a four-day-a-week schedule to help close a million-dollar budget gap. Nearly half of districts in the state are also on that four-day schedule. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. Robert Redford and Jane Fonda are bringing to life the last novel of a much-loved Colorado writer. They star in the Netflix adaptation of Our Souls at Night. Author Kent Harriff died just before his book was published. It's about a love affair in the golden years. It is set in the fictional eastern plains town of Holt, Colorado. The film, which was also shot in Colorado, comes out on Netflix September 29th. Today, we listen back to a conversation with Kent Harriff's widow, who helped Jane Fonda prepare for the role, and we'll hear from Harriff's former editor. But let's start with the opening chapter of Our Souls at Night, read by actors from the Denver Center. Chapter 1. And then there was the day when Addie Moore made a call on Lewis Waters. It was an evening in May, just before full dark. They lived a block apart on Cedar Street in the oldest part of town, with elm trees and hackberry, and a single maple grown up along the curb, and green lawns running back from the sidewalk to the two-story houses. It had been a warm in the day, but it turned off cool now in the evening. She went along the sidewalk under the trees and turned in at Lewis's house. When Lewis came to the door, she said, Could I come in and talk to you about something? They sat down in the living room. Can I get you something to drink, some tea? No, thank you. I might not be here long enough to drink it. She looked around. Well, your house looks nice. Well, Diane always kept a nice house. I've tried a little bit. It still looks nice. I haven't been here for years. She looked out the windows at the side yard where the night was settling in and out into the kitchen where there was a light shining over the sink and counters. It all looked clean and orderly. He was watching her. She was a good-looking woman. He'd always thought so. She had dark hair when she was younger, but it was white now and cut short. She was still shapely, only a little heavy at the waist and hips. You probably wonder what I'm doing here. Well, I didn't think you came over to tell me my house looks nice. (laughs) No, I, I... I want to suggest something to you. Oh? 
It's a, it's a kind of proposal. Okay. Not marriage. Oh, I didn't think that either. But it's a kind of marriage-like question. But I don't know if I can now. I'm, I'm getting cold feet. <laughs> That's sort of like marriage, isn't it? What is? Cold feet. It can be. <laughs> yes, well, I'm just going to say it. I'm listening. I wonder if you would consider coming to my house sometime to sleep with me. What? <laughs> How do you mean? I mean, we're both alone. We've been by ourselves for too long, for years. I'm lonely. I think you might be too. I wonder if you'd come and sleep in the night with me and talk. <laughs> you don't say anything. Have I taken your breath away? I guess you have. Well, I'm not talking about sex. I wondered. <laughs> no, not sex. I think I've lost my sexual impulse a long time ago. I'm talking about getting through the night and lying warm in bed companionably. The nights are the worst, don't you think? Yes, I think so. I end up taking pills to go to sleep and reading too late, and then I, I feel groggy the next day. No use at all to myself or anybody else. I've had that myself. But I think I could sleep again if there was someone else in bed with me. Someone nice. The closeness of that. Talking in the night, in the dark. What do you think? I don't know. <laughs> when do you want to start? <laughs> Whenever you want to, if you want to. This week? Let me think about it. Well, all right. But I want you to call me on the day you're coming, if that happens, so I'll know to expect you. All right. And I'll be waiting to hear from you. What if I snore? Well, then you'll snore or you'll learn to quit. That would be a first. <laughs> she stood and went out and walked back home. And he stood at the door watching her. This medium-sized, 70-year-old woman with white hair, walking away under the trees in the patches of light thrown out by the corner street lamp. What in the hell? <laughs> now don't get ahead of yourself. Chapter 2. The next day, Lewis went to the barber on Main Street and had his hair cut short and neat, a kind of buzz cut, and asked the barber if he still shaved people, and the barber said he did, so he got a shave, too. Then he went home and called Addie. I'd like to come over tonight, if that's still all right. Yes, it is. I'm glad. He ate a light supper, just a sandwich and a glass of milk. He didn't want to feel heavy and laden in her bed. And then he took a long, hot shower and scrubbed himself thoroughly. He trimmed his fingernails and toenails, and at dark, he went out the back door and walked up the back alley, carrying a paper sack with his pajamas and toothbrush inside. <laughs> it was dark in the alley, and his feet made a raspy noise in the gravel. A light was showing in the house across the alley, and he could see the woman in profile there at the sink in the kitchen. He went on into Addie Mae's backyard, past the garage and the garden, and knocked on the back door. He waited quite a while. A car drove by on the street out front. 
its headlights shining. He could hear the high school kids over on Main Street hogging their horns at one another. Then the porch light came on above his head and the door opened. What are you doing back here? I thought it would be less likely for people to see me. I I don't care about that. They'll know. Someone will see. I made up my mind I'm not going to pay attention to what people think. I've done that too long. All my life. I'm not going to live that way anymore. Allie makes it seem like we're doing something wrong or something disgraceful to be ashamed of. I've been a school teacher in a little town too long. That's what it is. But all right, I'll come by the front door next time. If there is a next time. Don't you think there will be? Is this just a one-night stand? I don't know. (laughs) Maybe. Minus the sex part of that, of course. I don't know how far this will go. Don't you have any faith? In you, I do. I can have faith in you. I see that already. But I'm not sure I can be equal to you. What are you talking about? How how do you mean that? Encourage. Willingness to risk. Yes, but you're here. That's right. I am. Then you better come in. We don't have to stand out here all night, even if it isn't something to be ashamed of. He followed her across the back porch into the kitchen. Let's have a drink first. That sounds like a good idea. (laughs) Actors Chris Kendall, Billy McBride, and Kathleen McCall reading from the opening chapters of Our Souls at Night by Kent Harreff. And with us now, Harreff's wife, Kathy, and his editor at Knopf, Gary Fiskichon. Welcome to you both. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, Kathy, how is it to hear your late husband's words like that? Well, I just think that Kent had a brilliant idea there. When I read the manuscript, I thought I was so shocked. And then I thought, this is brilliant. Why would older people who are isolated by themselves, lonely, why wouldn't they do that? Why haven't we heard about this? You were shocked at first. What, what shocked you about it? Well, because I've just never heard of this idea of somebody going to someone they know and say, will you spend the night with me? <laughs> and, and we're not talking about romance. We're just talking about getting through the night. It's a great idea. And I've never read a book about it. Have you, Gary? Nope. Nope. Never read anything. <clears throat> I've never read a book about it, and I've never really heard anybody who's done that. And I think... I think it'll become a trend. (laughs) At the risk of getting personal, did you see it as Kent giving you permission to do this after he'd passed? I mean, in other words, he was writing this book when he knew he was ill. Uh, Was this a kind of um, acknowledgement that it was okay to seek companionship for yourself? Oh, I don't know. I never thought of that. When he was ready to write this book, he said, well, in April a year ago, he was feeling a little better physically, and he said he was going to go to his writing shed. Let me say that he had a lung disease. He had a, a, a lung disease, yeah, an incurable lung disease. So he said, I'm going to write a story about us. And I said, really? 
so when I read the manuscript, I realized, ah, he's talking about a couple old people who talk all the time because that was, as he said, that was always his favorite time of the day when we'd lie in bed at night and hold hands and talk over everything, the day, living, dying, kids, and he loved that. And so I realized that's what he's talking about. How are you doing? Are you, are you holding up? I'm, I'm up and down and all around, so I think I'm, I'm doing just fine. Yeah. Gary, how would you describe, to those who haven't read a Kent Harif novel, how would you describe his writing? Hmm. Real good. <laughs> <laughs> you, you, ought to, you ought to read it. <laughs> I mean, it's funny, actually, that you say real good, because I think one attribute of Kent Harif's writing is its simplicity and yep. its spareness. Well, one of the reviews of this book said it's distilled to its essence. And, you know, a wrong word fouls it all up. I mean, everything has to be exactly perfect. And I think that that's true of this book. In 2013, Kent Harif was on Colorado Matters, and I asked him about Holt, this tiny fictional town where he set plain song, eventide, Benediction, and now Our Souls at Night. I feel as if I've invented that place. I know the, all the streets and most of the people in the county and uh, the gravel roads, the, uh, the main street going north and south, the highway going east and west, the elevators at, along the railroad, stores and the false storefronts on Main Street, the names of the streets as such as they are, all those things I have in my mind so I don't have to spend time thinking about them or reinventing them. Have you ever tried drawing Holt or laying out the streets or something? No, I, I know that pretty clearly, but I have drawn pictures of individual houses so that I knew how they uh, were laid out and where the sun would strike the rooms uh, from the south and so on. What feelings do you have about Holt? And I wonder if you ever long to go to this non-existent place because I have felt that desire after reading his books. Well, Holt is pretty clear in my mind from from his books and from being through the towns that he kind of used as models for this this area. Yeah, let me let me say he was born in Pueblo, but he lived in towns like like Ray and Holyoke and Yuma, Colorado. Right. These were inspirations for him. Well, I think he took what he knew from those and used parts of, you know, what he knew to make up this town of his. Gary, do you ever want to go to Holt? I'd like to ride around that in the high plains, for sure. Um, but I wouldn't, be, I wouldn't be trying to identify anything, but just, you know, I love those small little towns anyway. But, he's, again, he's distilled those towns into this town, so there's no, there's, there are no direct correlations. You are hearing a conversation recorded in 2015 about Our Souls at Night by the late Colorado author Kent Harif. Later this month, Netflix releases the movie version starring Jane Fonda and Robert Redford. It was shot in Florence, Colorado and Old Colorado City. My guests are Harif's widow, Kathy, and his former editor, Gary Fiskett-John. Kathy made reference to his writing shed... Um, like everyone's got a writing shed, go to the writing shed. Um, what was the writing shed? Like, paint a picture of that for us. Well, it was an eight by eight tool shed that we bought and we insulated and then 
took sheets and stapled them up there for wallpaper. And, and um, This is in Salida. Well, that was up in Maysville when we lived in the mountains. And then um, about two and a half years ago, we moved into Salida and brought it with us. It had a desk and a chair and a little heater and his old uh, royal typewriter. And um, it had a bull skull, so it hanging on the wall. So he would he would remember not to write bullshit. <laughs> and, <clears throat> and it had a little bookshelf in it, and that was about it. It was great. And he wrote on a typewriter? His first draft of a book was always written on an old upright typewriter. He'd pull a stocking cap over his eyes so that he wasn't distracted by punctuation or any any of these things. And so he would just be... He would type blind. He would type blind, and he'd be typing away. And But usually it would be just a scene on a page, and, and he said he only got off home row a couple of times and wrote gobbledygook. <laughs> but that um, yeah, was just an old typewriter, and you could hear the tap, tap, tap. It strikes me as like very Jack Kerouac that he was he was writing in a kind of a frenzy or a, a stream of consciousness. Well, he would get in some kind of an alpha state or whatever you call it, and and writing blind, so he he wasn't worried about syntax or punctuation, paragraphs, anything. I mean, he would just type. Gary, as an editor, how familiar are you with your writers? Routines and does Kent Harris' routine sound like anyone you've ever met? I think a lot of people, you know, will be who happen to live in prettier places than I have happen to live. You know, be a big window. They'll, they'll face the blank wall rather than be able to sit and look out the window. I mean, it makes a kind of sense, although it's contrary to what we like to do in our normal lives, but. Um, you know, the stocking cap thing is certainly a, a new wrinkle. Cat um. <laughs> Harris did not use quotation marks in his dialogue, and I asked him about that in uh, 2013. Well, uh, some years ago, when I, I really started doing that with Plain Song, then I decided I didn't want to use quotation marks anymore. Mainly it had to do with the appearance of the page. It seems to me much less busy, less fussy to see a plain page of prose without quotation marks. Um, The other parts of that is that without quotation marks, a reader, I think, has to slow down a little bit to make sure he or she knows whether it's a narration or a dialogue. And uh, that's not a bad thing. If the writing's any good, to slow a reader down and make make the reader uh, read carefully. Not everybody thinks it's a good idea, I assure you. I got a letter once from a woman in Illinois who uh, wrote me and said that she had read three pages of Plain Song and would not read any more because there were no quotation marks. And she closed her letter by saying, well, I hope you're not an English teacher. And of course, I taught English for 29 years. And, but I will say that when I am teaching writing classes, writing students, that I... Uh, expect them to abide by the conventions until I know they know them and then they can make some experiments if they want. How was it as an editor to read prose with no quotation marks and did you ever have discussions with him about that or? 
No, it seemed natural to me. I mean, Kent wasn't the only person who, who did that. Cormac McCarthy's shoes, quotation marks, and all sorts of other things. Um, I mean, what what I like about what Kent had to say about that is it does encourage close reading. In a way, it's almost a shortcut. I think it would, in the case of Kent's prose, it, it's so pure and direct, it would almost seem gratuitous to me. So we never had any... You know, occasionally I will say to, to different writers, are you sure about this? Because... I ain't. <laughs> but that never came up with Ken. I asked Kathy Harriff to choose a sample of her husband's writing that she really loves, and she chose something from Plain Song, published in 1999. It was really Kent Harriff's breakthrough novel. He was 56 at the time and had been writing for decades. Kathy sets up the reading. I mean, Plain Song is a, a story about family and about people looking for love and forming new extended families and in this passage uh, Maggie Jones is a high school teacher who has a 17 year old girl Victoria who is pregnant living with her and her old father and because um, Victoria's mother has kicked her out because of the pregnancy uh, the arrangement with Maggie isn't working any longer because her father has dementia and it's just it's not working. So Maggie is looking for another place for Victoria to live. And she goes to see the McFerrins, two old brothers who live together on a ranch outside of Holt. So, I want something improbable, she said. That's what I want. I want you to think about taking this girl in, of letting her live with you. They stared at her. You're fooling, Harold said. No, Maggie said, I am not fooling. They were dumbfounded. They looked at her, regarding her as if she might be dangerous. (laughs) Then they peered into the palms of their thick, calloused hands spread out before them on the kitchen table, and lastly they looked out the window toward the leafless and stunted elm trees. Oh, I know it sounds crazy, she said. I suppose it is crazy. I don't know. I don't even care. But that girl needs somebody, and I'm ready to take desperate measures. She needs a home for these months. And you, she smiled at them, you old solitary bastards need somebody too. Somebody or something besides an old red cow to care about and worry over. It's too lonesome out here. Well, look at you. You're going to die someday without ever having had enough trouble in your life. Not of the right kind anyway. This is your chance. So this whole book talks about finding family in all kinds of unusual places and um, people looking for love and people giving love and opening their doors to each other. I mean, that's what Plain Song is about. Plus, it's real funny. Well, it is is funny. Um, He's really good at that, isn't he? I mean, in this span of just a few phrases, you can be laughing and then having goosebumps because he's... He's had such a profound exchange. Yeah. Yeah. Would you guys allow me to highlight an especially beautiful line from Eventide, which is the second book in the trilogy? Is that okay? Sure. So one of the McFerrin brothers dies, Harold. And again, these are the rancher brothers with a tough exterior but hearts of gold. 
And Hareth wrote of the surviving brother, Raymond, he prayed that there would be cattle in the afterlife for his brother's sake. It is so simple, it is so elegant, and uh, we got to ask Kent Hareth about that line in 2010. Of course, it, what it suggests is that Raymond wants for his brother what his brother would most want for himself after he's died. And if you're a cattle rancher, a cattle rancher thinks that there is no other occupation for a man as good as that. And so what he hopes for his brother is that he will be able to continue in some version the, the best parts of the, the life that he led while he was alive. So, Kathy Harriff, one more question for you about a passage from Our Souls at Night. Addie asks Lewis, aren't you afraid of death? Not like I was, he answers. I've come to believe in some kind of afterlife, a return to our true selves, a spirit self. We're just in this physical body till we go back to spirit. Do you think that's Kent talking about his view of his own death? Yes, yes. He and I spent, oh, probably six months. Our, our morning routine would be for him to have his smoothie. I had my cup of tea. I would read from all kinds of spiritual books, not church books, but just all kinds of spiritual books for maybe 20 minutes. Then we'd talk a little bit about it. We'd meditate a little bit. and That was our morning routine. And I think, um, well, I know it made a huge difference for him because that had never been his... I'd always had lots of books over the last 50 years on all these kinds of things. And periodically I'd read something and I'd say, what do you think of that? And he'd say... I don't know what to think about that. But he was always very, very respectful. I don't know what to think about that. But we had so many discussions and so much reading from different sources. And I think the wonderful thing that came from it is he lost his fear of dying. I mean, what bigger gift could anybody ask for? Thanks to both of you for being with us. Thank you, Ryan. Well, thank you for having us. Now let's take some questions from our audience at the Tattered Cover. John Hughes from Denver. Gary, you started working with Kent with the book Plain Song that became a big breakout for him. And I wonder if you, as you were going around the country to author appearances with Kent, how did you see him react to crowds of people whom he might not have uh, encountered before? And Kathy, I wonder how he reacted when he was off stage and when it was all over. We knew each other pretty well because you get to know a writer well. When you go through the editing, the writer gets to figure out if you're completely full of it or not. And we kind of we hit it off and went through this really intense and you know extended process. But... Then many, many, many months later, we finally met in Milwaukee, and at the first event, and then we went along, and, and it was thought at some point that since Kent wasn't terribly well known, that it would be nice to have somebody else keep him company or something. And it was useless. I mean, the crowds were so everything was jam packed, and. I like it as a bystander just to see, you know, because I sit in, uh, at my desk like an author sits at his or her desk, and, you know, 
that's a scintillating kind of deal. <laughs> it can get a little lonesome. Um, and, and aside from events, you know, like that, the writer never gets to see the people who love reading his stuff, her stuff. And it was wonderful to see. I think it was, you know, wonderful for Kent to experience because no writer writes except, you know, the main reason is you want to be read. And it's very frustrating how difficult that can be. And I think that Kent had experienced that difficulty. And here he was getting kind of the opposite. So it was exhilarating. I mean, he was sick, I was sick. I mean, it was a kind of pathetic show, but he, he did really good, and all I had to do was stand there and hope not to keel over. They had quite a uh, dog and pony show that first, first week of the first tour of Plain Song, these two sick men going down the West Coast. But Kent, all after, after he would have a gig and he'd, he'd do his, his reading and questions and answers. I mean, he always felt good afterwards, in, you know, his, in his quiet way, but it felt very satisfying to him. And he, he always loved the question and answer part. I mean, that was, that was the most interesting part to him. Did he have a lot of frustration that it, I mean, because he was 56, right, when Plain Song came out mm-hmm. and had been writing, well, he'd written two novels prior. Right. And I think his first short story wasn't published till he was in his 40s. Was that a source of real frustration for him? Well, I think he was just surprised with Plain Song. I mean, he was he was shocked. I mean, he wrote Plain Song. He it took him about six years. He was shocked at the the reception of it, that it was so well received, and he felt really good about it. Janie Holman from Littleton. Uh, Gary, this is a question for you. How did Kent? happen upon you initially with his manuscript, or how did you happen upon him? Well, it, I'll go back to the first book, which came out in 1984, and it was nominated for a, a host of awards, and it might have even won one or two <laughs> of them. I noticed this, and I said, well, i got to read this book, because obviously this is somebody, and it was the first book, I didn't expect that I could have heard of him before. And I read it and was hugely impressed. And this is I, the the tie that binds. Tie that binds. Uh-huh. And I don't read. I, I like to keep up with who's doing good work. I'm I'm not looking around to see some writer somebody else is publishing so I can steal him or her. Um, so it got a lot of attention. I don't you know I don't know what the I don't remember what the sales were, but they weren't they weren't appropriate. Um, the second book was published in such an invisible way that I, I wasn't even aware there was a second book. And that wouldn't have been heartening to anybody but a masochist. Um, and this is where you once belonged. Yeah. So I think that Kent decided, you know, he had to make some kind of change, and um, he and his agent kind of landed on me, I think, that he probably sent it to other people as well. But um, it was a book that didn't take me long to realize what was there, and I wanted it very badly. And I think Kent, like some of the other people I published... I must say that the manuscript was sent out to a few places. Tons and, of people. And that is the manuscript for Plain Song. Yeah. For Plain Song, and Kent always said, I don't care what the advance is. If Gary Fiskett, John will take it, that's who I'm going with. 
I mean, he had his eye on you before. It didn't matter what anybody else offered. <laughs> that is from an evening at the Tattered Cover Bookstore dedicated to the late Colorado author Kent Hariff, who died in 2014 of lung disease. His final novel, set in the fictional town of Holt, Colorado, is called Our Souls at Night, and it's now a Netflix movie starring Robert Redford and Jane Fonda. The film comes out September 29th. It was largely shot in Colorado. You heard from Harif's widow, Kathy, and his former editor at Knopf, Gary Fiskett, John. I want a Sunday kind of love. A love to last past Saturday night. It's Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. And finally today, the sound of the Grammy-winning vocal group Roomful of Teeth, singing in a unique spot in northwestern Colorado. This is Inside the Tank, We've reported on the tank recently. It's 60 feet tall and sits on a hilltop in the town of Rangeley. The acoustics inside, as you can hear, are amazing. And this piece from Roomful of Teeth is called Just Constellations by composer Michael Harrison. Deshaun Burton, one of the singers in Roomful of Teeth, explains what it was like to walk into the tank before the performance. The first time I stepped in, it was very hot. <laughs> There's no air conditioner or anything like that, which is totally fine. And actually, it's a really beautiful way of just sort of experiencing the land. You have really flat desert all around, and to step inside of it, you, you feel like you're, you're stepping inside of a different time or, or something like this. And, and then even your footsteps, you know, just have this sort of cosmic echo that kind of happens. So it's, it's a really, really beautiful experience. Well, this weekend, our colleagues at CPR Classical will broadcast a full Room Full of Teeth concert recorded at the Tank earlier this summer. You can hear it at 7 p.m. Saturday or 7 p.m. Sunday on CPR Classical and at CPR.org. I'm Ryan Warner. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. <laughs>